guys. This is episode five of our Let's Read series on Albert Camus' The Fall. Um, and so I'm not going to do too much preamble this episode. I think I'm going to just pretty much hop right in. But before I do, there's one thing that I wanted to mention that actually was on my mind as I was reading the last chapter, but then totally forgot to talk about at the end of the discussion section. And it comes back to what I was reading at the end of the chapter where uh, Jean Clement says, I wanted to break open the handsome wax figure I presented everywhere. And on top of that, he's, he's at the end of the chapter performing all of these strange self-destructive behaviors, like intentionally giving a lecture to these law students about how uh, you should make yourself look really bad in order to p- defend your um, your client. Or in a later case, he decides to do something strange, like go to these atheist cafes and yell at the world the word God. And just these, again, strange little uh, quirks in self-destructive behaviors he has, um, all in order to break open the handsome wax figure I presented everywhere. And the thing that immediately came to mind was actually a quote from a different book. Um, This is a book by Milan Kundera titled The Unbearable Lightness of Being. And I always remember the section where he talks about this phenomena he calls vertigo. Um, We think of vertigo as, I think, just old people getting dizzy. But the definition here was so much more interesting. Um, So I won't go into the context of the quote, but I'll just read it and let you guys think on it. I don't really have much else to say, um, but I'll read the quotes. We'll go to transition, and I'll just start with uh, chapter five. Anyone whose goal is something higher must expect someday to suffer vertigo. No, vertigo is something other than the fear of falling. It is the voice of the emptiness below us which tempts us and lures us. It is the desire to fall against which, terrified, we defend ourselves. boat is going at top speed, but the Zuter Zee is a dead sea, or almost. With its flat shores, lost in the fog, there's no saying where it begins or ends. So we are steaming along without any landmark. We can't gauge our speed. We are making progress and yet nothing is changing. It is not navigation but dreaming. In the Greek archipelago, I had the contrary feeling. Constantly new islands would appear on the horizon. Their treeless backbone marked the limit of the sky, and their rocky shore contrasted sharply with the sea. No confusion possible. In the sharp light, everything was a landmark, and from one island to another, ceaselessly on our little boat, which was nevertheless dawdling, I felt as if we were scuttling along, night and day, on the crest of the short, cool waves in a race full of spray and laughter. Since then... Greece itself drifts somewhere within me, on the edge of my memory, tirelessly. Hold on. I, too, am drifting. I am becoming lyrical. 
Stop me, Cher, I beg you. By the way, do you know Greece? No? So much the better. What should we do there, I ask you? There one has to be in pure heart. Do you know that their male friends walk along the street in pairs holding hands? Yes, the women stay home and you often see a middle-aged, respectable man, sporting mustaches, gravely striding along the sidewalks, his fingers locked in those of his friend. In the Orient, likewise, at times. All right. But tell me, would you take my hand in the streets of Paris? Oh, I'm joking. We have a sense of decorum. Scum makes us stilted. Before appearing in the Greek islands, we should have to wash at length. There, the air is chaste and sensual, en sensual enjoyment as transparent as the sea. And we... Let's, see, let's sit down on these steamer chairs. What a fog. I interrupted myself, I believe, on the way to the little ease. Yes, I'll tell you what I mean. After having struggled, after having used up all my insolent airs, discouraged by the uselessness of my efforts, I made up my mind to leave the society of men. No, no, I didn't look for a desert island. There are no more. I simply took refuge among women. As you know, they don't really condemn any weakness they would be more inclined to try to humiliate or disarm our strength. This is why woman is the reward, not of the warrior, but of the criminal. She is his harbor, his heaven. It is in a woman's bed that he is generally arrested. Is she not all that remains to us of earthly paradise? In distress, I hastened to my natural harbor, but I no longer indulged in petty speeches. I still gambled a little out of habit, but invention was lacking. I hesitate to admit it for fear of using a few more naughty words. It seems to me that at, time, at the time, I felt the need of love. Obscene, isn't it? In any case, I experienced a secret suffering, a sort of privation that made me emptier and allowed me, partly through obligation and partly through out of curiosity, to make a few commitments. And as much as I needed to love and be loved, I thought, and as much as I needed to love and be loved, I thought I was in love. In other words, I acted the fool. I often caught myself asking a question which, as a man of experience, I had always previously avoided. I would hear myself asking, do you love me? You know that it's customary to answer in such cases. And you? If I answered yes, I found myself committed beyond my real feelings. If I dared to say no, I ran the risk of ceasing to be loved, and I would suffer therefore. The greater the threat to the feeling, which I had hoped to find calm, the more I demanded that feeling of my partner. Hence, I was led to ever more explicit promises, and came to expect of my heart an ever more sweeping feeling. Thus, I developed a deceptive passion for a charming fool of a woman who had so thoroughly read true love stories that she spoke of love with the assurance and conviction of an intellectual announcing to the classless society. Such conviction, as you know, it is contagious. I tried myself out at, talkative, at talking likewise of love and eventually convinced myself, at least until she became my mistress and I realized that true love stories, though they taught how to talk of love, did not teach how to make love. After having loved a parrot, I had to go to bed with a serpent. So I looked elsewhere for the love promised by books, which I had never encountered in life. But I lacked practice. For more than 30 years, I had been in love exclusively with myself. 
What hope was there of losing such a habit? I didn't lose it and remained a trifler in passion. I multiplied the promises. I contracted simultaneous loves as, at an earlier period, I had multiple liaisons. In this way, I piled up more misfortunes for others than at the time of my fine indifference. Have I told you that in despair my parent wanted to let herself die of hunger? Fortunately, I arrived in time and submitted to holding her hand until she met, on his return from a journey to Bali, the engineer with the graying temples who had already been described to her by her favorite weekly. In any case, far from finding myself transported and absolved in the whirlwind, as the saying goes, of passion, I added even more to the weight of my crimes and to my deviation from virtue. As a result, I conceived such a loathing for that love that for years I could not hear La Vie en Rose or Leibstad without gritting my teeth. I tried accordingly to give up women in a certain way and to live in a state of chastity. After all, their friendship ought to satisfy me. But this was tantamount to giving up gambling. Without desire, women bored me beyond all expectation, and obviously I bored them too. No more gambling and no more theater. I was probably in the realm of truth. But truth, Jeremy, is a colossal bore. Despairing of love and of chastity, I at last bethought myself of debauchery, a substitute for love, which quiets the laughter, restores silence, and above all, confers immortality. At a certain degree of lucid intoxication, lying late at night between two prostitutes and drained of all desire, hope ceases to be a torture, you see. The mind dominates the whole past, and the pain of living is over forever. In a sense, I had always lived in debauchery, never having ceased wanted to be immortal. Wasn't this the key to my nature and also a result of the great self-love I have told you about? Yes, I was bursting with a longing to be immortal. I was too much in love with myself not to want the precious object of my love never to disappear. Since, in the waking state and with a little self-knowledge, one can see no reason why immortality should be conferred on a salacious monkey, one has to obtain substitutes for that immortality. Because I longed for eternal life, I went to bed with harlots and drank for nights on end. In the morning, to be sure, my mouth was filled with the bitter taste of the moral state. But for hours on end, I had soared in bliss. Dare I admit it to you? I still remember with affection certain nights when I used to go to a sordid nightclub to meet a quick-change dancer who honored me with her favors and for whose reputation I even fought one evening with a bearded braggart. Every night I would strut at the bar in the red light and dust of that earthly paradise, lying fantastically and drinking at length. I would wait for dawn and at last end up in the always unmade bed of my princess, who would indulge mechanically in sex and then in sleep without transition. Day would come softly to throw light on this disaster, and I would get up and stand motionless in a dawn of glory. Alcohol and women provided me, I admit, the only solace of which I was worthy. I'll reveal the secret to you, cher ami. Don't fear to make use of it. Then you'll see that true debauchery is liberating because it creates no obligations. In it you possess only yourself, hence it remains the favorite pastime of the great lovers of their own person. It is a jungle without past or future, without any promise above all, nor any immediate penalty. The places where it is practiced are separated from the world. On entering, one leaves behind fear and hope.
Conversation is not obligatory there. What one comes for can be had without words, and often indeed without money. I beg you, let me pay honor to the unknown and forgotten women who helped me then. Even today, my recollection of them contains something resembling respect. In any case, I freely took advantage of that liberation. I was even seen in a hotel dedicated to what is called sin, living simultaneously with mature prostitute and an unmarried girl of the best society. I played the gallant with the first and gave the second an opportunity to learn the realities. Unfortunately, the prostitute had a most middle-class nature, since she consented to write her memoirs for a confessions magazine quite open to modern ideas. The girl, for her part, got married to satisfy her unbridled instincts and make use of her remarkable gifts. I am not a little proud, likewise, to have been admitted as an equal at that time by a masculine guide too often reviled. But I'll not insist on that. You know that even very intelligent people glory in being able to empty one bottle more than the next man? I'm al I might ultimately have found peace and release in that happy dissipation. But there too, I encountered an obstacle in myself. This time it was my liver, and a fatigue so dreadful that it hasn't let yet left me. One plays at being immortal, and after a few weeks, one doesn't even know whether or not one can hang on till the next day. The sole benefit of that experience when I had given up my nocturnal exploits was that life became less painful for me. The fatigue that was gnawing at my body had simultaneously cauterized many raw spots on me. Each excess decreases vitality, hence suffering. There is nothing frenzied about debauchery, contrary to what is thought. It is but a long sleep. You must have noticed that men who really suffer from jealousy have no more urgent desire than to go to bed with the woman they nevertheless think has betrayed them. Of course, they want to assure themselves once more that their dear treasure still belongs to them. They want to possess it, as the saying goes. But there is also the fact that immediately afterwards they are less jealous. Physical jealousy is a result of the imagination at the same time that it is a self-judgment. One attributes to the rival the nasty thoughts one had oneself in the same circumstances. Fortunately, excess of sensual satisfaction weakens both imagination and judgment. The suffering then lies dormant as long as virility does. For the same reasons adolescents lose their metaphysical unrest with their first mistress, and certain marriages, which are merely formalized debauches, became the monotonous hearses of daring and invention. Yes, cher ami, bourgeois marriage has put our contrary into his slippers and will soon lead it to the gates of death. I am exaggerating? No, but I am straying from the subject. I merely wanted to tell you the advantage I derived from those months of orgy. I lived in a sort of fog in which the laughter became so muffled that eventually I ceased to notice it. The indifference that had already had such hold over me now encountered no resistance and extended its sclerosis. No more emotions, an even temper, or rather no temper at all. Tubercular lungs are cured by drying up and gradually asphyxiate their happy owner. So it was with me as I peacefully died of my cure. I was still living on my work, although my reputation was seriously damaged by my flights of language and the regular exercise of my profession compromised by the disorder of my life. It is noteworthy, however, that I aroused less resentment 
by my nocturnal excesses than by my verbal provocations. The reference, purely verbal, that I often made to God in my speeches before the court awakened mistrust in my clients. They probably feared that heaven could not represent their interests as well as a lawyer invincible when it came to the code of law. Whence, it was but a step to conclude that I invoked the divinity in proportion to my ignorance. My clients took that step and became scarce. Now and then I still argued a case, at times even forgetting that I no longer believed in what I was saying. I was a good advocate. My own voice would lead me on and I would follow it. Without really soaring as I once did, I at least got off the ground and did a little hedge hopping. Outside of my profession, I saw but few people and painfully kept alive one or two tired liaisons. It even happened that I would spend purely friendly evenings without any element of desire, yet with the difference that, resigned to boredom, I scarcely listened to what was being said. I became a little fatter and at last I was able to believe that the crisis was over. Nothing remained but to grow older. One day, however, during a trip to which I was treating a friend without telling her I was doing so to celebrate my cure, I was aboard an ocean liner, on the upper deck of course. Suddenly, far off at sea, I perceived a black speck on the steel gray ocean. I turned away at once and my heart began to beat wildly. When I forced myself to look, the black speck had disappeared. I was on the point of shouting, of stupidly calling for help, when I saw it again. It was one of those bits of refuse that ships leave behind them. Yet I had not been able to endure watching it, for I had thought at once of a drowning person. Then I realized calmly as you resign yourself to an idea, the truth of which you have long known, that that cry which had sounded over the sien behind me years before had never ceased, carried by the river to the waters of the channel, to travel throughout the world, across the limitless expanse of the ocean, and that it had waited for me there until the day I had encountered it. I realized likewise that it would continue to await me on seas and rivers, everywhere in short, where lies the bitter water of my baptism. Here too, by the way, aren't we on the water? On this flat, monotonous, interminable water whose limits are indistinguishable from those of the land. Is it credible that we shall ever reach Amsterdam? We shall never get out of this immense holy water font. Listen, don't you hear the cries of invisible gulls? If they are crying in our direction, to what are they calling us? But they are the same gulls that were crying, that were already calling over the Atlantic that day, I realized definitively that I was not cured, that I was still cornered and that I had to make shift with it. Ended the glorious life, but ended also the frenzy and the convulsions. I had to submit and admit my guilt. I had to live in the little ease. To be sure, you are not familiar with that dungeon cell that was called the little ease in the Middle Ages. In general, one was forgotten there for life. That cell was distinguished from others by ingenious dimensions. It was not high enough to stand up in, nor yet wide enough to lie down in. One had to take on an awkward manner and live on the diagonal. Sleep was a collapse, and waking a squatting. Mon cher, there was a genius, and I am weighty on my words, in that so simple invention. Every day, through the unchanging restriction that stiffened his body, the condemned man learned that he was guilty, and that innocence consists in stretching joyously. 
Can you imagine that cell, a frequenter of summits and upper decks? What? One could live in those cells and still be innocent? Improbable. Highly improbable. Or else my reasoning would collapse. That innocence should be redu reduced to living hunchbacked. I refuse to entertain for a second such a hypothesis. Moreover, we cannot assert the innocence of anyone, whereas we can state with certainty the guilt of all. Every man testifies to the crime of all the others. That is my faith and my hope. Believe me, religions are on the wrong track the moment they moralize and fulminate commandments. God is not needed to create guilt or to punish. Our fellow men suffice, aided by ourselves. You were speaking of the last judgment? Allow me to laugh respectfully. I shall wait for it resolutely, for I have known what is worse, the judgment of men. For them, no extenuating circumstances. Even the good intention is ascribed to crime. Have you at least heard of the spitting cell, which a nation racially thought up to prove itself the greatest on earth? A walled-up box in which the prisoner can stand without moving. The solid door that locks him in his cement cell shell stops at chin level, hence only his face is visible, and every passing jailer spits copiously on it. The prisoner, wedged into his cell, cannot wipe his face, though he is allowed, it is true, to close his eyes. Well, that, mon cher, is a human invention. They didn't need God for that little masterpiece. What of it? Well, God's sole usefulness would be to guarantee innocence, and I am inclined to see religion rather as a huge laundering venture, as it was once but briefly, for exactly three years, and it wasn't called religion. Since then, soap has been lacking, our faces are dirty, and we wipe one another's noses. All dunces, all punished. Let's all spit on one another and hurry to the little ease. Each tries to spit first, that's all. I'll tell you a big secret, mon cher. Don't wait for the last judgment. It takes place every day. No, it's nothing. I'm merely shivering a little in this damned humidity. We're landing anyway. Here we are, after you. But stay a little, I beg you, and walk home with me. I haven't finished. I must go on. Continuing is what is hard. Say, do you know why he was crucified? The one you are perhaps thinking of at this moment? Well, there are heaps of reasons for that. There are always reasons for murdering a man. On the contrary, it is impossible to justify his living. That's why crime always finds lawyers, and innocence only rarely. But besides the reasons that have already been very well explained to us for the past 2,000 years, there was a major one for that terrible agony, and I don't know why it has been so carefully hidden. The real reason is that he knew he was not altogether innocent. If he did not bear the weight of the crime he was accused of, he had committed others, even though he didn't know which ones. Did he really not know them? He was at the source after all, he must have heard a certain slaughter of the innocents. The children of Judea massacred while his parents were taking him to a safe place. Why did they die if not because of him? Those blood-spattered soldiers, those infants cut in two, filled him with horror. But given the man he was, I am sure he could not forget them. And as for that sadness that can be felt in his every act, 
Wasn't it the incurable melancholy of a man who heard night after night the voice of Rachel weeping for her children and refusing all comfort? The lamentation would rend the night. Rachel would call her children who had been killed for him, and he was still alive. Knowing what he knew, familiar with everything about a man, ah, who would have believed that crime consists less in making others die than in not dying oneself? Brought face to face, day and night, with his innocent crime, he found it too hard for him to hold on and continue. It was better to have done with it, not to defend himself, to die, in order to not be the only one to live, and to go on elsewhere where perhaps he would be upheld. He was not upheld, he complained, and as a last straw he was censored. Yes, it was the third evangelist, I believe, who first suppressed his complaint. Why hast thou forsaken me? It was a tedious cry, wasn't it? Well, then, the scissors. Mind you, if Luke had suppressed nothing, the matter would hardly have been noticed. In any case, it would not have assumed such importance. Thus the censor shouts aloud what he prescribes. The world's order likewise is ambiguous. Nonetheless, the censored one was un un unable to carry on. And I know, Cher, whereof I speak. There was a time when I didn't at any minute have the slightest idea how I could reach the next one. Yes, one can wage war in this world, ape love, torture one's fellow man, or merely say evil of one's neighbor while knitting. But in certain cases, carrying on, merely continuing, is superhuman. And he was not superhuman. You can take my word for it. He cried aloud his agony, and that's why I love him. My friend who died without knowing. The unfortunate thing is that he left us alone to carry on. Whatever happens, even when we are lodged in the little ease, knowing in turn what he knew, but incapable of doing what he did and of dying like him. People naturally tried to get some help from his death. After all, it was a stroke of genius to tell us, you're not a very pretty sight, that's certain. Well, we won't go into the details. We'll just liquidate it all at once on the cross. But too many people now climb onto the cross merely to be seen from a greater distance, even if they have to be, even if they have to trample someone on the one who has been there so long. Too many people have decided to do without generosity in order to practice charity. Oh, the injustice, the rank injustice that has been done him. It wrings my heart. Good heavens, the habit has seized me again, and I'm on the point of making a speech to the court. Forgive me and realize that I have my reasons. Why, a few streets from here, there is a museum called Our Lord in the Attic. At the time, they had the catacombs in the attic. After all, the cellars are flooded here. But today, set your mind at rest. Their lord is neither in the attic nor in the cellar. They have hoisted him onto a judge's bench in the secret of their hearts, and they smite. They judge above all. They judge in his name. He spoke softly to the adulteress. Neither do I condemn thee, but that doesn't matter. They condemn without absolving anyone. In the name of the lord, here is what you deserve. Lord? He, my friend, didn't expect so much. He simply wanted to be loved, nothing more. Of course there are those who love him, even among Christians, but they are not numerous. He had foreseen that too. He had a sense of humor. Peter, you know, the coward. Peter denied him. I know not the man. I know not what thou sayest, etc. 
really, he went too far. And my friend makes a play on words. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Irony could go no further, don't you think? But no, they still triumph. You see, he had said it. He hadn't said it indeed. He knew the question thoroughly, and then he left forever, leaving them to judge and condemn, with pardon on their lips and the sentence in their hearts. For it cannot be said, there is no more pity. No, good Lord, we never stop talking of it. Simply, no one is ever acquitted anymore. On dead innocence, the judges swarm, the judges of all species, those of Christ and those of the Antichrist, who are all the same anyway, reconciled in the little ease. For one mustn't blame everything exclusively on the Christians. The others are involved too. Do you know what has become of one of the houses in the city that sheltered Descartes? A lunatic asylum. Yes, general delirium and persecution. We, too naturally, are obliged to come to it. You have had a chance to observe that I spare nothing, and as for you, I know that you agree in thought. Wherefore, since we are all judges, we are all guilty before one another. All Christ's in our mean manner, one by one, crucified, always without knowing. We should be at least if I, Clements, had not found a way out, the only solution, truth at last. No, I am stopping, Cherami, fear nothing. Besides, I'm going to leave you, for we are at my door. In solitude and when fatigued, one is after all inclined to take oneself for a prophet. When all is said and done, that's really what I am, having taken refuge in a desert of stone fogs and stagnant waters, an empty prophet for shabby times. Elijah without a messiah, choked with fever and alcohol, my back up against this moldy door, my finger raised towards a threatening sky, showering in processions on a lawless men who cannot endure any judgment, for they can't endure it, Trecher, and that's the whole question. He who clings to a law does not fear the judgment that reinstates him in an order he believes it. But the keenest of human torments is to be judged without law, Yet we are in that torment. Deprived of their natural curb, the judges, loosed at random, are racing through their job. Hence we have to try to go faster than they, don't we? And it's a real madhouse. Prophets and quacks multiply. They hasten to get there with a good law or a flawless organization before the world is deserted. Fortunately, I arrived. I am the end and the beginning. I announce the law. In short, I am judge penitent. Yes, yes, I'll tell you tomorrow what this noble profession consists of. You are leaving the day after tomorrow, so we are in a hurry. Come to my place, will you? Just ring three times. You are going back to Paris. Paris is far. Paris is beautiful. I haven't forgotten it. I remember its twilights at about the same season. Evening falls, dry and rustling. Over the roofs, blue with smoke. The city rumbles. The river seems to flow backward. Then I used to wander in the streets. They wander now too, I know. They wander, pretending to hasten toward the tired wife, the forbidding home. Ah, mon ami. Do you know what the solitary creature is like as he wanders in big cities?
Albert Camus The Fall. And just as a side note, it's interesting. It's been an interesting experiment for me making these podcasts because pretty much immediately after I finish the chapter, I talk about it. There's no uh, note taking. There's no. I, I never know what I'm going to say in the section. Again, it's a very no frills approach. And it's interesting because most of the time when I'm reading the chapter out loud, I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to talk about that. Oh yeah, I'm going to talk about that. Um, or certain things are coming into my mind and I just go right into it. But I'm reading this one and this is the chapter where I think that happened the least amount of times. Um, there weren't many areas here where I had some great insight or some thing that I thought, oh yeah, for sure I want to mention this in the discussion at the end. There's only a couple and I think that that's just interesting. I am now, my mind is shifting more towards thoughts on the overall book and I'm already thinking ahead to what I'm going to talk about when it comes to ending the book and overall summaries. But in terms of this chapter, it's very difficult for me to come with some real takeaways. And I think that that's for the most part because the first part is just about his debauchery and I don't really have much to say about that. Um, it's just kind of more of the same at this point. Um, he continues to indulge in women in a way that's really just, I think we come to learn a way that's just numbing him, numbing him, his sufferings, numbing his emotions. And he thinks that this is a cure. He thinks that this is an antidote. Um, he thinks that this is what's making him feel better. But in reality, he's just numbing and repressing all of these sufferings and calling it a cure. Um, and so I don't really have much to say about that. And then the other section, the second half, is so many references to Christianity and Bible stories and Jesus himself where, I mean, I can get some of the gist, but there's obviously so much that I'm missing out on because I don't have the proper knowledge of a lot of the things he's referencing here. And this is probably my biggest gap when it comes to reading this book and I mean just books in general whenever there's a deep cut Bible reference I just it's over my head I don't I don't know what to relate it to I don't I'm not familiar with the stories so again this chapter has a lot of that probably the entire second half of the chapter is dedicated to discussing Jesus Christ his crucifixion and all of these other Bible references. And so it's just not a lens I'm that familiar with. And so I don't even feel qualified to talk about an analysis of this part of the book because I'm just not equipped enough at all. So the analysis section is going to be pretty short. Like I said, I think that the first chapter, or sorry, the, the first part of the fifth chapter is all about him numbing, numb himself through indulgences, through trying to find what he calls love, but obviously isn't really love, um, trying to, to dance between different prostitutes, different women. This is, it's a fallback. It's a crutch. There's no real spiritual growth in any of this that he's doing, even though he feels like he's getting better. He's not. This is a shallow solution. He's drinking himself um, to death. He's partying. He's sleeping with prostitutes. And like, it, it's 
funny when he says he talks about these nights and it is these nights that he goes out and he goes crazy where he feels most immortal where he's never going to die and then he wakes up in the morning and he's got the bitter taste of mortality in his mouth and of course he does of course he does this is not immortality this is a fool's idea of what immortality might look like and uh, uh, again, Jean Clements, of course, I think realizes this in his confession much later, but as he's doing it, he really does feel like he's better and he's, um, he's improved himself and he's rid himself of his suffering. And then there's this moment, which in is in, I guess, the middle of the chapter where he's on, I believe, a cruise ship and he sees a small speck in the water in front of him and he starts like looking at it and he starts to internally freak out a little bit and he he's worried that it's a body he's worried that someone might be drowning in the water but it turns out it's just a piece of debris and reading it you don't even need to get to his explanation you already know that he's so worried about this little piece of debris this little speck because of the woman because of the woman who he just walked on um as she jumped off the bridge and it's at this point where he has this wake-up call he's like oh shit i'm not cured at all i was just repressing this the second that i'm triggered by this moment um seeing this speck of debris in the sea it immediately sparks this uh flashback to the moment on the cn um with the woman on the bridge who jumps and like that's really what the source of the suffering is and going to prostitutes or women or trying to find love it's just it's just avoiding that it's totally not facing the real cause of the suffering and and sure enough jean clements in the span of just 12 seconds sees this piece of debris and all of a sudden it all comes crashing down again and i just think that's interesting like often the antidotes that we seek out aren't the antidotes that we need and John Clemens is a perfect example of that. Um, what he really needed to do was do some deep soul searching and try and pay it forward in whatever way um, that he can think of for this situation with the woman on the bridge. But his solution instead was to go to the red light district in Amsterdam and get incredibly drunk and sleep with prostitutes to make himself feel a little bit better. Um, that is not... Uh, uh, an antidote or a cure at all. And so, yeah, I think this is a tough chapter because, like I said, there's so much that I'm missing out on in terms of my own knowledge, in terms of the lenses that I have to analyze these books and how severely I'm lacking in my knowledge to be able to tackle a chapter like this. So, um, you know, if any of you guys out there have a bit more insight in terms of the religious stuff, or you read this chapter and you're like, oh my God, how are you not talking about this part? Um, please let me know. Send me an email. I might just be totally missing something. But like I said, my thoughts are saved for the final chapter and my thoughts are saved for the book as a whole. So this is going to be a pretty short episode. I think I'll end it here. Um, but thanks again, everyone, of course, for making it this far. And 
the next episode is going to be the last one. We're going to finish the book. We're going to read the last chapter. And then we're going to talk about some thoughts on the chapter itself, but then some overall takeaways from the book. So the next chapter is a pretty long one. So it's kind of nice, actually, that this is a bit of a shorter episode. But otherwise, I wanted to just say thank you again to every single one of you out there who have listened to the podcast, who have, um, you know, enjoyed it in any way or have watched or listened to the podcast again or sent us an email. All of you guys out there, I just like can't thank you and appreciate you guys enough. So um, I just don't want that to be lost on anyone. So that's it for me. I will talk to you guys on the mic very soon and let's finish Albert Camus the fall. Thank you so much guys. Never in my life did I imagine it be peace. Never-